Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. May I pause just for a minute before I continue to read and just remind you that the context in which Jesus made that statement, and we've heard that statement a number of times in church, in Sunday school, in our Christian-based discussions. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for a friend, and we make all kinds of applications to that. But let's contextualize this. Jesus is talking about love. He's talking about the greatest demonstration of love. And that greatest demonstration is to die for your friends. And then he says, you're my friends. So it's quite logical that in the context, Jesus is saying the greatest love is to die for one's friends. I will die for you. That is the greatest love. I don't know that we have many examples where one human being is willing to die for another, but those that we have are astounding. But the greatest example by far is Jesus now tipping his hand a little bit and saying, what you're about to behold in the very near future is the demonstration of the greatest Love, laying down your life for the friends. You are my friends. Here's the qualifier. If you do what I command. Kind of pin that to the board. That's going to be there throughout this sermon. Verse 15 is interesting. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business is. Instead, I call you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. So he's designating the relationship is special. Then he gets into the part about election. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now, Jesus introduces his disciples to this new concept of this special relationship that they can and should have with him. He uses the word friend which implies a relationship that humans never imagined they could have with God. 
the Jewish mentality and understanding of God as seen throughout the Old Testament. He was so holy and so majestic, yet so distant, that all they could do is view him as uh, this, this supreme power before whom they should fear and, of course, honor. But friend, that was not a common concept in Judaism. So Jesus is breaking ground in this relationship between man and God and saying, do you realize that I'm talking about a relationship with the Almighty that comes to, to friendship? And maybe there are people, even here today, who view God as some sort of a heavenly despot, somebody that just wants to smack people upside the head for being out of line all the time, somebody who just wants to pour out wrath and judgment on the world because we are so far removed from righteousness. Maybe God is this cold, distant power, if you believe in God at all, but Jesus is personalizing God. And I think the majority of us here understand what that means, to have that personalized relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The problem is, when we see that word friend, and we abuse that by making God too familiar, sometimes when people think of Jesus as being the friend, they go so far as to reduce him to being their buddy because that's kind of the way we view friends between each other. One of the, one of the guys reducing Jesus to the good old boy, one of our peers with whom we can from time to time even risk being a little bit rude and crude because, hey, this is my friend. The tragedy is, when we view Jesus as a friend in the 21st century concept of friendship, we risk losing the awe and the respect that his disciples never failed to have for him. Now, we can call Jesus friend if we frame that in keeping him in full respect as God. We lose that aspect of he is God and we get too familiar, too much of a buddy to him. It's an ultimate slander to Jesus. Now this, this unconditional love, but this conditional friendship for God so loved the world. What's conditional about that? For God so loved the world. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. He loved us. While we were yet enemies, He loved us. Love is unconditional. Friendship with God is conditional. People like to rest on the fact, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. 
But the question is, are you a friend of God? Does he consider you a friend? Because that is a different issue altogether. We, we can agree God loves you. Are you his friend? Take it to another level. The fact that he sent his only begotten son to die for us as a sacrifice for our sins demonstrates unquestionably how much God loves us. But it doesn't imply there's a relationship there yet. Jesus very clearly stated, you're my friends if you keep my commands. So he's moving us, challenging us to move to this deeper relationship because of the unconditional love. Now you can leave here today and you can rest assured God loves you. May not always be happy with you. May not approve of the things you're doing, but God loves you. One of those Christian television programs from years gone by used to always finish up their broadcast by saying, God loves you. He really does. Isn't that sweet? But is he your friend? We love to reinforce this notion he loves us. But is he your friend? Because that implies being obedient to him. Are they being obedient? Are they surrendering their, their thought life to you? Are they surrendering their mouth to you? Are they surrendering their attitude, their temperament to you? Are you God's friend because you're obeying him or just living in la-la land? God loves me. It's not the end of the story. One key component of this, this passage is is the way in which Jesus qualifies his comments about calling them friend. And he says this, I no, no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Now, in the 13th chapter of John, which we covered several weeks ago, there, are, there is a passage there in which Jesus alludes to servanthood two times. And we just kind of glossed over that, and we missed the importance of that at the time. But now Jesus is going back, and he says, he didn't say, I don't call you servants. You're my friend. He said, I no longer call you servants. So we're scratching our heads. When did you call me a servant? Well, let's remember back on this conversation. Maybe I can refresh your memory. In the 13th verse of the 13th chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, You call me teacher and Lord. And he said, Rightly so, for that's what I am. I am your teacher, master, Lord. You call me that, I accept it. There's a relationship there that they felt they had with him, that he was the master, he was the instructor, he was the Lord, and they were his what? Servants. Slaves. You're the teacher, I'm the servant. And then it says in the 14th verse, as it continues this thought, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. For very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. Now, it's not accidental that Jesus used this metaphor. 
because he was talking about if I do it and I'm the master, you should do it and you're my servants. So in the 13th chapter, he very definitely acknowledged this relationship that, that we had was teacher, student, Lord, servant, master, slave. And the disciples did not object to that. They accepted their position. They accepted that relationship. They're following this man. He's calling the shots. We're just doing whatever he tells us to do. Sometimes he empowers us to go into town and minister and do miracles, and we do what he says. Sometimes he commands us to run errands, and we run errands. Whatever he says, we do it. They accepted that relationship. But Jesus got close to the end, and he says, it's not the kind of relationship I want to leave you with. I've brought you this far as master and servant because I'm preparing you. But he said, I'm no longer going to call you servant. Now I'm going to call you a friend if you do what I command. This relationship has to go deeper. I won't call you a servant because servants are not entitled to know the master's business. They are not privileged to know why the master made that decision. They are not privileged to know the master plan. If they're told to dig a hole, they dig a hole. They can't go to the master and say, by the way, what is it you're building here? The master says, I don't confide in you, my business. You're my servant. You do what I say. What does it matter what I'm doing? I haven't given you the details. I don't want your opinion. Just do it. That's what I hired you to do. So Jesus says this master-servant relationship, the servant doesn't have a clue why he's doing most of what he's doing, unless it's apparent. But he said, the reason I'm not going to call you servants anymore is because I am confiding in you the big plan. I'm letting you in on knowing what this is all about. Everything the Father has shown me, I have now passed on to you. Our relationship is going deeper than what it started out as, all by design. Purposeful design from Jesus. I'm taking you from this level to the next level to the next level. How many of you people understand? God is taking you from one level to another constantly in your life. When you first got saved, there were many things you did not understand about your relationship with God. You had all kinds of false ideas and assumptions about this relationship. Especially before you got saved, you had all kinds of false ideas about who God was and what his relationship and interest was in man. But then you get saved, you get into this new dimension, and you haven't got it all sorted out yet. And some people got saved and they believed that God was still angry with them all the time. How many of you people grew up in an Assembly of God church or a similar church? Yeah, several hands going up. How many of you grew up in a Calvinistic church, Presbyterian, Baptist? We've got few. All of you that grew up in an Assembly of God church or Arminian 
Theology Church. How many of you got saved more than once? How many of you got saved literally every Sunday there for a while in your life? You went out and you lived your life and you came back feeling so dirty the next week because I got to get saved again this week. I wish I'd quit doing this. People are getting sick and tired of being the only one getting saved. At the end of the year, you got 52 salvations. It's all the same person every week. How many from the Calvinistic background you went and got saved and it's, the job's done? It doesn't make you never how nasty you can be from now on. See, there's extremes to everything, isn't there? We've got to meet somewhere in the middle. God's moving you in your relationship, in your experience, in your understanding. Moving his disciples from, we've got to get by this master-servant thing. I'm going to take you to where you have a personal relationship. I'm going to divulge things to you that will help you understand the master plan. And God is interested in taking you deeper than you've ever been before. But you've got to be willing to go. And most of it looks painful to us, so we resist. You get comfortable where you are and the progress you've made. I don't want to go any further. I'm happy right here. Let's just park it right now. God's not happy with that. He wants to keep you going, and it all hurts. But there's no pain, no gain. We're not just mere pieces of machinery meant to execute without the master never confiding the details of the plan. We're not just tools that he uses to carry out his commands. He said, instead, I've called you friends. Everything I learned from my father I've made known to you as God continues to reveal more and more to us as we go. And maybe he hasn't revealed the entire thing to us, but we sure know a whole lot more about it than we did a while back, don't we? We're learning as we go. and Sometimes he gives us a little glimpse of the future and we know where we're going. But he's revealing. He's helping to develop us. We don't have that simple master-servant relationship. Anybody thinks that living for God just means you become this robot that God demands and dictates that you do this and that and live your life a certain way but gives you no incentive and no rationale and no reason for doing that. You've got the wrong concept of God. God says, I want to call you a friend. I want you to understand why I am doing what I am doing to you, with you, and through you. Becoming acquainted with the mind of God. Through the Spirit, understanding more and more about the plan of God and the mind of God. He is our mentor. He trains His followers. He pours His wisdom and knowledge into those who follow Him. The Master would not be interested in developing servants. That would know his business. But the father is interested in developing friends in whom he can confide. The master wants to keep the servants ignorant and dependent on them, oppressed and in bondage. But God wants to set you free. He wants to inform you. He wants to enlighten you. 
that's why it's important to understand the concept of friendship. The next topic is election, calling. And I, I, I want to say this to begin with. It's not just about your decision. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now, it's not obvious to our Western culture minds, but Jesus was telling them about a countercultural approach that he was using. His followers would have been shocked that he would say this. Because in those days, if somebody wanted to, to be under somebody else, mentored by them, learned from them, they would make the choice to attach themselves to that person. That's not totally divorced from our Western culture mentality. Throughout my life, I've heard the testimony of many people who wanted to learn something, and they sought out somebody they, they, they thought was good or the best at what they did. And they put themselves under their tutelage, and they learned from them. I knew a, a carpenter that, as far as I was concerned, he was as close to a master carpenter as anybody ever met. But when he was... 13, 14, 15 years old, he put himself under the tutelage of another master carpenter and learned from him as quickly as he could and absorbed. And he learned quickly. By the, by, before he was 16 years old, he had bought himself about 40 acres, sawed down a bunch of pine trees, bought a sawmill, sawed up his own lumber, dried it, cut it to dimension, built his own cabin. 16 years old, give me a break. I still couldn't get the Lincoln Logs together right at that age. He put himself under a master and learned from him. You, you, you know of examples like that as well. You find somebody who's good in one particular area where you want to learn, you absorb from them. You drink in everything they will share with you. So that would have been that culture. In that culture, you choose somebody you want to learn from. And Jesus came along with this shocking countercultural approach to teacher and student. And he says, let me remind you of something. None of you came along and saw me and said, hey, I think I want to follow you. Now, it's not that people didn't do that to Jesus. But you remember how quickly they left? Because they chose him. But these disciples, handpicked, he reminds them, you didn't choose me. I came up and chose you. I said, you, I want you to follow me. Handpicked. It's one thing to make your own decision about being trained or discipled. You can hire a personal trainer to come and put you through a rigorous workout to get you in shape. But when you grow tired of all that exercise and you don't like being forced to get up early and limit your diet 
and do all of that stuff. That You know what you do? You fire them because you chose them. It's very easy to break this commitment when you choose them. You've joined a gym because you're going to get in shape. You finally have paid that dues. You're paying your monthly fees. You've announced to everybody, I've joined the gym. Three months later, no progress has shown you quit paying your dues. Because you made that choice and you can unmake that choice. But then there's when somebody chooses you. He says, I see the potential in you, and I'm going to pour into you, and I'm going to develop you, and I'm going to make you into everything that you have the potential to be. And when you tell them to go away, it's too early in the morning, they don't go away because they have made a commitment. I'm not going to let you go to seed. I'm not going to let you waste your talent. I'm not going to let you throw your life away. I'm going to be there. I'm going to bug you to death. I'm going to pester you. I'm not going to let you go because I believe in you. I'm going to drive you. I'm going to make you into everything God intended you to be because they chose you. I'm telling you, that's God. That's Jesus. He chose. He chose you. Now, a lot of you are sitting here thinking, I'm following Jesus today because I made a decision to follow him. Well, before you ever made that decision to follow him, he called you. He was calling. And you answered. That means he was choosing. He said, I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. And when you came and you said, well, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here, this is not about you and your decisions. I made a decision a long time ago. I wanted you on the team. And when you decided to join, I'm going to pester you to death until you become the man or the woman that I know you can be. Don't you tell the Holy Spirit to go away and leave you alone. God is investing in you. He believes in you. Decisions. Yeah, we, we, we think of salvation in those terms. We sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. We don't sing, He has chosen me. I have decided to follow Jesus. Like, it's all about you. You just woke up one day and thought it'd be a smart thing just to follow him. I think I'll go find him and tail behind him. We use that language when we say we had a hundred decisions in church last year. Decisions? What did you decide? We have an old joke runs around in ministerial circles. We had a hundred decisions in church last year. Most of them decided no. And when we frame these things in the words of decisions, you, you, we omit the most important part about this, and that is Jesus called you long before you decided to say yes. There's something very powerful about understanding this. And this is what I'm trying to get to drive home here. You're not the initiator. You're the responder. Christ calls out to you. He's calling out to you. He's choosing you. He invites you. The Spirit is inviting. 
And when you say yes, it's not just because you of your own sovereign free will choice decided, I think it'd just be a nice idea to follow Jesus today. It's because you have been called. You have been wooed. You have been chosen. God has invested in trying to draw you in. And as a result of that, when you finally said yes, you have to understand, now he's going to really put his thumb in your back because he believes in you. And it's not just a matter of you saying, I decided, therefore I can undecide. This is like a gym membership. I joined, I don't like it, I'm going to quit. Now it's not like that at all. It's like when you said yes to Jesus, he said, now I'm really going to hold your feet to the fire. I want you to understand how important this commitment is. I'm not going to let go easily of you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to dog you. When you do wrong, I'm going to convict you to where you can't sleep. I'm going to do everything in my power to help you understand. I want to see you get through the whole thing. Why? Because he had eyes on you. He chose you. He wants you. And he will do everything he can to make sure you make it all the way. And it's just because we now understand it wasn't just a matter of us choosing to follow Christ, but Christ choosing to invite us first that we need to be a whole lot more serious about serving him. It wasn't just your sovereign choice to serve him or not serve him. It's coming to the realization that he saw something in you. You hear me? He saw something in you. Those that are sitting here today, you're wondering if your life is worth a paper bag. He saw something in you. It's coming to the realization he sees potential in you. He believes in you. He chose you. He called you. He looked at you and said, I can do something with that. I'm calling you here. He believed in you far more than you ever believed in yourself. And you're sitting there with self-doubt this morning and wondering what your life is worth and you're trying to find some value in your life with all the cheap junk you're investing in and the cheap relationships you're giving into. I'm telling you, God found worth in you. He found value in you. He wants to redeem you from that which is killing you and make you everything He knows you can be. He believes in you more than you believe in you. He's investing in you more heavenly than you, heavily than you can ever invest in you. You're special. You're chosen by God. You can't ignore that. And that's the reason it's important to understand the proper context of being called, being elected. Now, the next thing that's important about that is you have to understand that with a calling comes an appointment because Jesus said, I have called you and I have appointed you. So when you've call, been called and you say, I'll respond, yes, Lord, then God says, good, because I've already got a task for you. I already have an appointment. I've called you and I have appointed you. Commentator Gerald Borchert says, Election is not about privilege. It's about purpose. It's not about who's thinking being called makes you special. It's not about being special. 
It's about a purpose in your life. God called you because he has a purpose for you. It's not about elitism. I'm called and you're not. Many are called. The problem is not everybody answers that call. But answering the call doesn't make you a part of an elite group. It's not about status. That's Phariseeism. It's about purpose. Christ said, I chose you and appointed you so that you might bear fruit. So in answering in your call, you're understanding now God has a purpose for you to live out. And, of course, you're wondering, well, what is that purpose anyway? Back to this reminder, the Bible says many are called. The sense of many, quite obviously, is many is the opposite of few. If he said few are calling, called, then we would understand less than the majority significantly. Many are called puts us on the heavy side, over in the majority. Many are called. Perhaps all are called. The, the, the term is not meant to say many are called, but nobody a few never get a call. That, that's not at all what that is implying if we want to put it in the context of salvation or purpose. And God says, I don't call you. I don't have any purpose for you. But many just meaning the call goes out. Millions, multitudes. The important part of that is fewer chosen. And people struggle with that. What do you mean? How can you be called and not chosen? Because you said no. It's as simple as that. Don't wrestle with that scripture anymore. It's not more complicated than that. It's a little awkward the way it's been translated into English, but it's no more complicated than this. Many are called, the ones who are chosen are the ones who said yes. Simple as that. Don't complicate it. God called you, and maybe you answered in all sincerity. Maybe you said, Lord, here I am. Send me like Isaiah. So God has this custom-designed purpose for your life. And he says, I have something I intend to use you for. But the purpose will always have to do with influencing somebody else for the kingdom's sake. Do you realize that there is somebody in your life that you have a greater percentage chance of influencing and reaching with the gospel than anybody else in the world. Now, there may, might be many people with whom you have such a relationship, but every one of you, there is somebody you have a greater chance of reaching than anybody else. That in itself is an assignment. Mother and father, if it's nothing more than your children, you have a greater opportunity and chance of steering them into godliness, Christianity, into the kingdom, into heaven, than anybody else in this world. And if you blow it because you can't get your act together, there will be eternity to regret having failed in your assignment. You have great influence over people. Some of you here, you have an unsaved spouse. It could be you have the greatest potential for influencing them of anybody in the world. 
And if your only answer to the difficulty of this situation is, I'm going to divorce these losers because I can't stand it anymore. I, that, that's not the answer. I had <clears throat> one lady who was sitting in my office telling about her plans to divorce her husband. It just wasn't going well. Why are you going to divorce him? I don't love him anymore. Now, wait a minute. And we talked about just reaching perfect strangers, complete strangers with the gospel. Why would you do that? I do it because I love them. And you don't love your husband enough to preach the gospel, to, to be an example of the living gospel? You'll do this for a complete stranger because you love them and you don't even know them. Because I don't love them. You don't love them. You don't care if they die and go to hell. Because, see, as much as the marriage can break down, relationships can break down, if you're missing that fundamental love for somebody and their soul, you don't even love them enough to make sure that they have an opportunity to get into heaven. I don't even know if you're going. I'd say good chance you aren't. If I beat you there, I'm going to meet you at the gate and argue with you. How dare you say you didn't love somebody enough to even care about whether they went to heaven? See, there's something more than just physical attraction. There's caring about the eternity, the eternal state of a person's soul. Loving them enough to say, I'm going to do whatever I can to reach them for Jesus Christ. Besides... I don't care how bad a loser that wife or that husband may be. When they get saved, they can become the greatest spouse in the world. You got to get them to that point and let God turn them around. It's an assignment. You're not considered a slave just to carry out orders. He considers you the friend to instruct in the matters of the kingdom. So you understand why you are doing this. It makes sense. You understand the purpose. It's for evangelizing the world. It's for making converts out of others. It's for the message, uh, sharing the messages of forgiveness, healing, cleansing, empowerment. It's for spreading the good news. And about telling the world of the return and the reign of Jesus Christ one of these days. To tell the lost that Jesus saves. To tell the vile sinner that Jesus sanctifies. To tell the sick and the broken that he's our healer. To tell the weak that he's the baptizer in power. To tell the, tell the fearful and the hopeless that he's coming again to right every wrong and everything they see unjust about this world. You can say, but he's coming one day. That every valley is going to be brought up. Every mountain is going to be brought down. Every crooked path is going to be made straight. He's going to make every wrong right. There's a hope and a future in that. You've been chosen. You've been appointed. So let me get nosy. How are you doing with your assignment? As Jesus communicates the will of his Father to you, you have this assignment to take the good news to other people. You have purpose. And then he says, ask anything in my name. And out beside that, 
you might want to write in the margins of your Bible. You might want to underline that. You might want to make a note to yourself. You just might want to make a mental note in that steel trap mind of yours that never forgets anything. When Jesus said, ask anything in my name, put this in the margins of your mind or your paper. Keep it in context. Because what we like to do with that is we like to extract that little verse, ask anything in my name. He said, oh boy, bass boat, Mercedes Benz, condo in Florida. Ask anything you want. Get militant about it. Anything, he said anything. Want, what a word. Just manipulate it to your own advantage. Keep it in context, okay? What have we been talking about so far when he finally spills forth with this, ask anything in that you want? Well, obviously, we've been talking about being his disciple, talk about friendship with God, if you keep my commandments, talking about being called, talking about having assignment, and immediately hot on the heels with hardly taking a breath between talking about the, after talking about the calling, after talking about the appointment and the purpose, he says, and ask anything and you want. Now, think about it, people, in context. What do you think he's talking about? If you're going to be the kind of person that carries out the call and the purpose and the will of God. And he says in that context, by the way, if you need anything to get this done, ask. I'll make sure you're equipped to do it. And it has nothing to do with trying to feather our nest. It has nothing to do with trying to claim material things to, to, to put into our possession. It has to do with carrying out the will of God. And whatever you need to get that done, ask. Just ask. Don't think you have to go into this unequipped, naked, ill-advised, whatever you need. By the way, whatever you need. It's like in this, in this life, if you were going to send your child off on a mission, some task that you have signed them, and you put them in the car, and they've got to drive out of state, and they come back. And you give them a cell phone. You're saying, by the way, if you need anything, call. Okay? 200 miles down the road, your son calls up and said, I'd like a new car by the time I get back. By the way, you said, ask anything. You've missed the context here. Jesus said, Within the context of doing your assigned duty, ask anything. So he says, stay connected to the vine. Stay focused on your purpose. Stay faithful to your calling. To your calling. Petition Christ in prayer at any time for whatever you need to do these things. And the Father will be quick to respond. The final point, and it's a very short one, because it just summarizes everything. If you did not notice when I read the opening passage, Jesus opens up in verse 12 by saying this, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, if you're looking at your 
section there, the passage that we opened with, you can skip down to the last verse in that passage, and he says this, This is my command, love each other. I'll read them again, right side by side. Opening verse, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Closing verse, this is my command. Love each other. They are virtual bookends for this section where he starts out by reminding them that the important thing is you love one another, and he closes it by saying the important thing is you love one another. And in between both of those things, he tells you all this other stuff about what it means to be the friend of God, what it means to be called what it means to carry out your purpose. But between those, don't forget to start with love one another. Don't forget when you're ending it up, love one another because you can't get away from that. It destroys the whole program if you can't accomplish that. The one common thread that runs through all of this is Jesus saying, you cannot turn on each other. You will risk the mission with your squabbling and your fighting. You will put an end to all success if you can't quit bickering. The cement that holds this mission together is that you learn and determine you're going to love one another no matter if it kills you. Anytime you see a church with personal battles raging within, the congregation divided at each other's throat, that church is too busy fighting and involved in division and strife to ever carry out their appointed mission. That's why the enemy works so tirelessly, you understand people, to do what? To divide the church, divide the body. To plant a little issue to where people will take offense and fight one another. This is my command, love one another. That's first base, if you can let me use the baseball metaphor. You'll never get to home which is scoring for the kingdom, which is accomplishing the will of God, the purpose. You'll never get to home if you can't get the first base. Love one another. You can move on because you love one another. Now, I don't say that to be critical of Westside. I say that as a general observation because I'm going to repeat it because it bears repeating, because it is a very special situation. I think we have a church that really loves one another. If you're doing any squabbling and bickering and fighting, you are hiding it from me so successfully. I don't believe that. I don't know of any issues going on. It's a happy church. We love one another. More important, we love God. But I say it as preventative because we don't want to let anything coming down the road today, tomorrow, next week, or next year to bring any division and any strife because Jesus said at the beginning of this and at the end of that, I've got, I've got one thing you've got to get straight. 
I command you. Did you notice that word command? I command you. Love one another. Make it your priority. And after all, yes. Isn't that how Jesus summarized the commands? Take them all. Take, take all the commands. Take all the prophets. Take all the law. Take it everything. And hang it on this one thing. Love the Lord with all of your heart, everything in you, and love your neighbor as yourself. Would you bow your heads?